Welcome to WVYC's Perspectives. This is an up-close look at the students, faculty, and administrators who make your college unique. This weekly show shines a spotlight on the programs and people here at YCP. This week's host is Jeffrey Schiffman. Welcome to WVYC's Perspectives, and we are talking with Linda Holmes. She is the York College Writer-in-Residence, but probably most known for being the host of uh, Pop Culture Hour on NPR. She's also an author. Uh, her first book, Evie Drake Starts Over, uh, came out in 2019. But almost more importantly is she's got a new book coming out in June called Flying Solo. We'll get to those in a little bit. Um, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you, uh, and, and I think that this is something that you touch on, or at least I've seen some stuff that you touch on. You have a very unusual career path to get to where you are being a writer and, and I think maybe even a radio host. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I when I went to college um, back, you know, many, many years ago, I wanted to be a music teacher. Um, I did not get into the music school. I started just taking regular college classes and got very hooked on uh, sort of pre-law type of stuff. So I went to law school. I was a lawyer for about 10 years. And in the later part of my law career, I started sort of freelance TV recapping um, when that was a very young form. This was, you know, 2000, you know, two or three um, and did that for a while. And then eventually uh, left my legal job and went to New York to to work for the site that I had been freelancing for. Um, stayed in New York for about a year. Uh, that ended. And then NPR was looking for somebody to do a pop culture blog at that time. And um, uh, so I went down to came down to D.C. to do that. And then a couple of years after I started the blog, we started uh, the podcast. So. That is a very circuitous uh, route to uh, <laughs> music teacher to radio show host. Well, all completely the way I planned it. Completely the way but, I planned. But it. A, a good liberal arts education got you uh, the all the skills that you needed. And that's you know I like to we, think so. We that's something we talk to our students about. You know they they wonder why we have to take a, you know writing and you know public speaking and all the others. Well, because we want to make you uh, sort of uh, versatile and that you can go to. A, so let's talk about um, have you always been somebody that's been kind of uh, interested in pop culture? Is that was that a, when you were a young kid? Were you doing that or is that something that maybe as an adult you started to do? Well, I was really uh, I loved reading uh, Roger Ebert when I was a, a maybe not a kid kid, but a you know much younger person. Um, just started reading film criticism um you know, we watched like a lot of people in my house. We watched Siskel and Ebert. We watched movies. Um, and I was always very interested in those conversations. And I, I did take an interest in criticism in that way. Um, then I think when I got older, I realized that I just very much enjoyed having intense conversations with people about movies or shows or books that they they loved. Um, and I always felt like it was one very valuable and good thing to be making recommendations about what were the absolute best things people could possibly read and, and watch and listen to, but that I was also interested in talking to them about what they actually um, consumed and what they liked about it. And I think that's kind of how I became interested in talking to people about pop culture was 
the the conviction that you can have an interesting conversation about almost anything. It's it's the quality of the the conversation you're having, not necessarily the the nature of what the topic is. Has pop culture changed? I mean, we're a little longer in the tooth than most of the college students yeah. uh, might be. Has it changed? It's certainly I, my observation is yes, it has. I mean, I started in radio in the in the seventies and the early eighties. It's a very different world now than it was then. How has pop culture changed? Well, you know, just the the mere explosion of the number of outlets and places to find things has completely changed what the role is of those kind of what we would call gatekeepers. So, of course, you know, when I was a kid, we had three networks and PBS and a couple of of, um, you know, UHF channels uh, where you could get, you know, reruns of things or something of that nature. But, uh, you know, just the arrival of cable put people in such a different position in terms of consumption. But then obviously once uh, broadband Internet arrived, you know, it's a completely different, you know, the, the barrier to entry in terms of the ability to get things to people is so reduced as to be almost meaningless if you just mean mechanically get things to the point where people can see them. You can do that on YouTube. You can do that on Instagram. You know, you can make your movie on your iPhone and post it on YouTube, period. You can, the vast majority of people who are, you know, in a liberal arts school or something like that have the capacity to do that. And the vast majority of people who are interested in that can get themselves to a position where you can literally get things to people. The question is then, what's the curation and what is involved in finding, A, finding your audience if you're the creator, and B, finding the things that you care about if you're the consumer, because it does become really overwhelming. And at the same time, you know, I'm something of a skeptic about the idea of a monoculture that we ever had something where everyone was watching the same thing. A lot of times that depends on how you define everyone. Um, You know, it may have felt, for example, when something like Friends or Seinfeld was on, like everyone watched Friends and Seinfeld. There are plenty of people who were not watching Friends and Seinfeld who felt like in in their lives, everybody was watching something else entirely. But it is true that audiences are much smaller and pop culture has changed in the sense that there are just a lot more things with smaller audiences that have to be kind of sorted through. Do you uh, find your what do you gravitate to? What what what's your favorite sort of stuff? And I and and I'm sure it's varied, but what's your favorite sort of stuff to kind of take up your time? I love um, documentaries. I I am a very um, I am a a big uh, sucker for uh, kind of con man and fraud documentaries. I don't know why, but that's one of my like super subgenres of interest, some of which are really high end, really high quality things. And some of which are just really kind of crazy and sensational. And, and that's true. But I like documentaries. Generally, I watch a lot of documentaries and a lot of documentary series. Um, I do like, uh, you know, I guess what I would refer to as sort of domestic drama, I get to the point where I get really tired with about some of the the television that's just like everybody screaming at each other. And yet you can kind of bring me in if it's something like the, the HBO show Succession 
that has a family right. and has relationships, you can kind of bring me back into a willingness to sit and watch a boardroom where a bunch of people are yelling at each other, which normally to me is like, Ugh. so yeah, it is varied, but, but, you know, you, you kind of get the feel in your gut of what you like, and then you got to just sort of find the people that you trust who can help you track it down. We are talking with Linda Holmes. She is the York College of Pennsylvania writing writer in residence. All right, let's talk about the books. Your first book uh, came out uh, what uh, almost three years ago, mm-hmm. um, and it has an unusual title: Evie E V V I E Drake. Talk about your first book. Talk about the process that you went through for writing your because obviously you not really you you didn't weren't a novelist coming in. No, I mean I. The funny thing is, I assumed when I was growing up that everyone had originally wanted to, to write books. Um, it was so much a part of my childhood that I wanted to write books that I just assumed everyone wanted to write books. Didn't everyone read books? Didn't everyone have books read to them? And didn't everyone want to write books? So I always wanted to write books and I would pick up fiction projects and put them down sort of my entire life. Um, I was much too insecure about my writing to pursue writing when I was in college. I wasn't willing to show my writing to anyone. Um, but when I was older, I got into different kinds of writing kind of, you know, fiction was a, a pretty distant um, idea at that time. But I uh, I had this idea for this book and I wrote it over, you know, I, I wrote a little bit of it in like 2012 during if you're familiar with uh, NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, nice. Um wrote a little bit of it. And then my apartment flooded and I had to put it down and it got picked up and put down. No, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was just, I just had too much to deal with. Um, And I wasn't able to kind of keep up with a big project. So I sort of put it down, picked it up and put it down for a number of years, actually. And then in 2016, you know, 2016 was a very sort of stressful year to, to be in the world and kind of watching everything. And I picked it up a little bit more to have sort of more to do, more to think about um, and managed to finish it by you know, March of, of 2017. So it was really something where that book took a long, long time to write. Uh, but it's sort of, you know, writers always sound so corny when they say it was a, like this idea that wouldn't leave me alone. But that's kind of what happened. I kept really wanting to go back to it. And then I remember getting to the point where I told one of my friends, well, I think I've now written enough of this book that I've written these people into a situation where I feel like I have to finish the book so I can, so I can kind of get them out of this situation that I've written for them. So your process was obviously a very long one, but at the end, you probably spent, what, six, eight months uh, kind of really finishing it out. The hard work of that draft was probably six months ish. That's probably about right. When you that the big push to do probably the last 80 percent of it was was that that six months in, in 16, 17. Well, let's talk about the book a little bit. Talk about the characters. So Evie Drake is a woman who um, is about to leave her to leave her. Uh, when he, she's, she's a young woman. She has a pretty unhappy marriage. She's about to leave her husband and he dies in an accident. And so she's in a situation where because she had not told people that she was unhappy, you know, her, her grief is very complicated. And then she meets a baseball player who rents a room in the back of her house. And he has been sort of driven out of his career as a pitcher for the Yankees because he got the yips. And so they're both coming off these very difficult experiences that are hard to explain to people and they become close. And that's kind of what the book is about. 
any personal experience other than maybe you're a Yankee fan? I am not a Yankee fan, but, um, uh, you know, I, I grew up liking, you know, baseball was certainly the sport that I was most interested in when I was growing up. And it was, I think my brother-in-law mentioned to me at one point, the story of, um, Mackie Sasser, who was a catcher Mm, who lost the ability to throw back to the pitcher, which is the, the videos of him are bizarre and sad, um, and difficult. And I found it so strange that it was very compelling. And I thought I kind of like, that would be a good thing to put into a book. Um, so mostly a a lot of research, not as much personal experience. I did set it in, in mid coast Maine, which is a part of the world that I, I dearly, dearly love, um, uh, from visiting when, when I was a kid, we used to vacation up there. So I did set it there in a, a small town, um, up in mid coast Maine. And, and that comes from deep love of that part of the world. We are talking with Linda Holmes. She is the York College writer in residence. All right. So when did the genesis for the second book started? Did it start right away or did it start before you were actually finished with the first? Well, you know, when I sold Evie to Ballantyne, my publisher, I signed a contract for two books. And one of the reasons why I did that was that I wanted to make sure I wrote another book. And I was afraid that I would say to myself, well, you wrote a book and now like that was fun. So now I'm just going to go back and not do it anymore. And I wanted to push myself to keep on writing fiction. So I, I was committed to writing another book. Second books are extraordinarily hard, <laughs> which people will tell you. And you just, until you experience it, it's hard to, to know how true it is, but second books are really hard. Um, you know, is it, are you trying, do you want to write something that's similar to the first book? Do you want to write something that's different from the first book? To what degree are you trying to establish that you're good at the thing that you did before? It's, it's a whole set of neuroses. Um, but I didn't actually really solidify the idea for this book until probably uh, early 2021. Um, so deep into the pandemic. Um, when we had so many things to do, right? Well, and the thing that's funny about it is everybody, I think a lot of people thought, well, this will be a great time to write or pursue hobbies or whatever. But I think for a lot of people, their mental energy was so drained that it was not really a super time to take on big projects. I found writing extraordinarily hard during that time. Um, But I did put together this idea in part because I was at home watching a lot of Antiques Roadshow and this... um, this book starts with the discovery of a, of a duck decoy um, in a, a chest in the house of uh, this woman's great aunt who has died. And um, I really wanted to write something about a beloved old thing. And um, so it, it kind of grew out of um, my pandemic activities in some ways, but yeah, it was very hard uh, writing during that time, super, super difficult. And it didn't, so it, it had been a couple of years. I hadn't known exactly what I was going to write um, after Evie and, and it took some time. Do you think you'll go back and revisit Evie? Not those characters. I don't think, I mean, this book is actually set in the same community, but it's not a sequel. There are a couple of kind of crossover supporting characters, but um, I, I don't, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is when, when you write a sequel, it's complicated by the fact that I like to think the best time to write about any character is at the most interesting point in their life. Right. So sometimes if you've written a story, you know, there are many sequences in my life that would not really be interesting enough to write a novel about. And so there's no 
there's no guarantee that another point in that character's life is going to be a book. Um, so I don't really have any plans to go back to, to those characters now. What is your advice to someone, maybe a college student or college students uh, that you might be talking to here on campus? What's your advice to them on getting started in writing? Well, I, I think writers have to write, right? I, I, I wrote so much for so many years before um, I became sort of officially a writer. Uh, and I don't even know when I would exactly say that that became the way that I defined myself. Um, I was not a published novelist until I was almost 50. Um, I think if you're talking about getting started, the best thing to do is, and it's such cliched advice, but it's, I promise you, it's because it's the best advice. You got to write a lot and you got to read a lot and you will figure out what you respond to. And that's not to say like, look, take, take writing classes, work in writing workshops, um, whatever gets you writing and pay attention to that instinct of this is the thing I keep wanting to go back to. I think that's a very, you know, sometimes your, sometimes your, your subconscious knows a little more about what you want to write than, than you might consciously be thinking about. So that thing that won't leave you alone, that thing that you keep thinking about, I want to write that. I want to, and don't be overly worried about, you know, what kind of writer will I be in the marketplace or in the world or, you know, nothing that you write is going to sound nothing like anything that anyone's ever read before. I think a lot of young writers expect that of themselves and wind up kind of making these, you know, creating these really tortured um, demands on themselves. There there is nothing wrong with writing a a wonderful mystery or a wonderful romantic comedy or a wonderful thriller or a wonderful, as I said, domestic um, drama. Those are all beautiful forms because, because they're beloved, you know? So, so don't put too much pressure on yourself, write a lot, read a lot. Um, And then the whole business of writing is a whole other thing. Um, If you decide to be, if you're lucky enough to be a published writer, just make sure that you have people who are business oriented people because it is a business and you need business advice. No doubt about that. All right. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, you recently did a a show on uh, pop culture happy hour on the Wordle phenomenon, which really has popped up literally since Christmas. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that because I don't get it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the funny thing about Wordle is it is not really a new idea. Uh, The the word game uh, is essentially the same as a word game that was played on an old game show called Lingo. Um, The general idea of it is very similar to a game I played when I was a kid called Mastermind. The idea of, you know, is it, you know, what's, in the right place, but, you know, and accurate and what's it's there, but in the wrong place, the kind of the basic mechanics of it are not new. I think what they got right in developing Wordle was the, um, the shareability of it was that the way that that developer came up with the idea of the little, the shareable grid of the green and yellow and gray squares so that you could have a visual of what, people's, you know, how people's Wordle day went 
was that was the innovation. That was the really terrific idea. That was the the great thing about it because for two reasons, right? It's really fun to look because you can look and see like how did this person's guesses go and all that, but it also made it stand out. The, the little colored grids really stood out on people's um, Twitter feeds or Facebook feeds so that if you didn't know what it was, it was like, what is this? And when you see it for the third or fourth time, you really go, all right, what is this? And that's what happened to me. Um, you know, after I saw it a certain number of times, you, it sticks out so much. So it's sort of, it is less something that was a completely original idea and more an idea that was executed exceptionally well in terms of getting people to pay attention to, to this kind of old form. Got him a lot of money from the New York Times, too. Look, I feel like I'm glad that I'm always happy when somebody oh, makes absolutely. their money. Uh, it's so common for really sticky, fun things on social media not to make money for people, even if they're really clever and brilliant. That, you know, look, if you make your money, good for you. Good for you. Linda Holmes, your college writer in residence and the host of the Pop Culture Happy Hour on NPR. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we look forward to uh, your continued work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for WVYC's Perspectives. The program airs weekly on Mondays and Fridays at 9 o'clock. Public Affairs program is also available as a podcast at wvyc.podbean.com. Jeffrey Schiffman serves as the Executive Director of Perspectives. We hope you join us again for this in-depth look at the York College community.